Good morning. Good morning. Josh, this happens every time I need your help. I bring too much weight. Can I steal another music stand? David, will you be offended if I steal your music stand and not touch anything? All right. It's a problem when you bring so much that the music stands literally just sink. Um, I'm just going to steal this. I promise, David, I will not mess up your stuff here. I know, exactly. Uh, well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys again, as usual. And uh, it, it really is a joy every time I'm here because I know I've said this before, but it really is family coming here and to see the gift of the extended body. Um, we've always fought at our church to know other pastors and know other churches. Uh, it's such a joy to not be competitive, uh, but to really rejoice in what God is doing in one another's ministry. So thanks for having me. Uh, let me pray and then we'll get into John 1. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we already have, by your grace and by the Spirit, we have come and beheld the wondrous mystery through worship. Lord, we have heard the gospel in song and we really could leave rejoicing in who you are and what you have done, but we ask now that you would come and elevate and exalt and make much of the majesty of your Son. Lord, would you take this well-known text in John 1, 14 through 18, would you shine the light upon the person and work of Christ? Would you bring into the frame all of the Old Testament allusions and significance that John has in mind? And would you spur up in our own hearts and minds affection that would increase today for who you are and what you have done? So by your Spirit, Lord, you know each and every heart here. You know the struggles, you know the triumphs, and you know the needs. And so would you come and do that precious work you do, Holy Spirit, of applying the word to your people. And so, Lord, we plead with you and ask that you would come and make much of yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In my early 20s, I had begun to become a movie buff of sorts. Uh, this, this primarily started because I was across the world in the Army at my first duty station, and I had a lot more downtime than I had ever had in my life, interesting enough. And I started to buy movies upon movies, and in my downtime would watch these movies. Well, one of my first and favorite experiences with movies was to see when writers or directors would cast themselves in these small, almost insignificant roles in their own movies. In fact, you started to expect from some of these writers and directors to see them in every movie that would come out after that. Now, as much as I enjoyed these cameos, they didn't define who that person was. No, they were just a character in their own story. Now, take this idea and go back about 70 years when C.S. Lewis wrote extensively about this idea about becoming a character in his own story. Now, imagine with me for a moment that C.S. Lewis never wrote his famous Chronicles of Narnia story. Even without the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis would still be C.S. Lewis. He is not dependent upon his stories. 
He was who he was apart from these stories. In the same way, God has always existed prior to the creation of the world. In the beginning of John chapter 1, you see this mutual dwelling of the Father and the Son before the creation of the world. They were mutually dwelling with one another, loving one another, and existing apart from their creation. Now, if C.S. Lewis were to write himself into the Narnia stories, the Narnia characters would logically have to call him creator and causer of all things. Likewise, when God created the world through his word, his only son, the response of his creation should be to acknowledge him and him alone as the creator and causer of all things. How much more should his creation trust him if he came down into his story and made himself known? Throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, we see God enter into his story time and time again. In Exodus 3, God himself enters into the story and reveals himself to Moses as the creator and eternal one who sustains all life. Later in Exodus chapter 20, God reveals himself through his law to Moses again. But the pinnacle of God entering into his own story in the Old Testament is found in Exodus chapter 33 and specifically Exodus chapter 34. In that scene, Moses goes into this portable tent called the Tent of Meeting. It was a sort of prototype to the tabernacle that would come and eventually the temple. And he would go into this Tent of Meeting and meet with God himself. In Exodus 33, Moses goes into the Tent of Meeting and he asks God, Show me your glory. God responds to him like this in Exodus 33, 19-13. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In the next chapter of Exodus, Exodus 34, God makes good on this promise to show Moses his glory. In the most quoted passage in all the Bible, if you read Exodus forward, there is no passage more quoted than Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And it is a passage about God's glory and His character and His presence being revealed to His prophets. He says this in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So picture with me, God has saved his people out of slavery to Egypt. Their new identity, not only as children of God, is also a wandering people. Year after year, we'll watch them wander through the desert, and yet God in his grace gives them the tent of meeting and then the tabernacle to be this portable presence of his glory and his character to them. And almost every biblical author takes this scene to show, the, show it to be the primary revelation of God's character in all of the Old Testament. That from Exodus 34 forward, every biblical author is reaching back to that scene in the desert, grabbing onto it and holding onto it for dear life as if it is the most important thing they know. It is this revelation of who God is that shapes their character and charges what they do in everyday life. But this God who revealed himself to Moses in this way, we also see is a God who cannot fully reveal himself to Moses. You see, his face could not be seen because his glory is so awesome that to See that glory unmediated would surely result in death. I don't know if these birds mean like I'm cursed. Is, is this like a normal thing? They're coming up off me. Uh, just making sure. Now, the history of Israel is founded in this revelation of glory and character and presence. In fact, the reason the rest of the Old Testament repeatedly quotes this passage is not only because it's the most clear revelation they had of God. As I recently said, it is, in a sense, their lifeblood. This is their DNA. This is their makeup. And yet, even though they have this glorious revelation of God about His glory and His character and His presence, we also see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God's people neglect this revelation and run headfirst into worshiping other gods and idolatry and rebellion time and time again. They continue to live as if this glorious God is not all that merciful and gracious and give themselves over to other gods from surrounding nations. Years later, because of this continued rebellion, we see something heartbreaking happen due to their continued rebellion. This God who has revealed his glory and his character and his presence removes his glory and his presence from his people. Ezekiel 10.18 comes and it says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Again, Ezekiel 11.22-23 says this, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. This is from earlier imagery in Ezekiel about the throne of God. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. 
If you follow this theme of going east throughout Scripture, it was never an encouraging theme. It was always a theme of God removing himself from his people, or in fact, his people removing themselves from him. But here what we have is actually so heartbreaking, because it is a visible picture of God moving away his glory and his presence to his people. The glory and presence of God departed from the people of God and they were left in exile away from their home and away from their God. And what, what followed, many of us know, is what's often called the 400 years of silence. God did not reveal himself. He did not raise up a prophet. He did not speak. To his people, and I want you to imagine those who once worshipped in the presence of God were now passing away, and children after children, generation after generation was born, not knowing the glory or the presence of God, but only having the character that was passed on generation to generation. As his glory and presence were withdrawn, the people of God truly only had one thing to grab onto. And it was the Exodus 34 revelation of who God was and what he was like. They had to grab onto this prior revelation and say, we don't see God. He doesn't speak to us anymore. This is all we have, his past revelation, and we will hold on to this dearly. God's revelation of his character was held on to as his people waited and waited and waited. That's what this Advent season is all about. It's about waiting. It's about waiting on the God who would finally speak, the God who would finally come. Now this year may have been the first time for many of us where we've had to wait upon God and we're probably far more aware than we've ever been before that we're not all in that all that much in control. I mean, I don't know what 2020's been like for you, but for me, it's been the up and down of, oh, we're going to be fine. God is great. He's with us. And then the next day, what in the world is happening? How are we going to move on from this? And yet, waiting is truly the posture of the people of God, and it has been. <coughs> since day one. But oftentimes that waiting means we have to cling to what we previously have been taught about God. Sometimes waiting means he isn't going to show up in the moment when our circumstances seem so loud and give us a new revelation. Oftentimes waiting means grabbing onto what we know about him already. And yet, our impatience and our inability to wait is often a sign that what God has already revealed about himself isn't satisfactory enough for us. The truth is, we, we could be weak at times, can't we? This shows us that we're not much different than the people of Israel. Right? We can often read the Old Testament narrative and see them running headlong into rebellion and idolatry, and we're thinking, how could they do that? They saw the glory and presence of God. And yet if we were to just be exposed for our actions of 2020, what would it teach us about our willingness to wait upon God and trust in Him? But you see, at the core of God's revelation, of His glory 
and his presence and his character to Moses is the reality that he is a merciful and gracious God. Just because he stopped speaking for 400 years doesn't mean that his character has changed whatsoever. As Hebrews 13 says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what he previously revealed, he still is. And that's where John 1, 14 through 18 speaks so loudly. Because after this 400 years of silence, the author of life, the creator and causer of all things, steps down into the silence and waiting and has something to say. John 1, 14 tells us of this monumental moment in redemptive history where the God of Exodus 34 breaks the silence and steps down into humanity to show off his glory and character and presence. John says this in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I'll confess, I cannot properly teach even verse 14 in what it actually deserves in one sitting like this. But I'll try to communicate the massive, important truths of it and entrust the Spirit to do what he intends to do. Three things I want to show from John 1.14 alone before we move on to the rest of the passage. First, when John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he is trying to take our minds back to Exodus 33 and 34. He's trying to take us back to that scene where Moses would go into the tent of meeting and experience the glory and character and presence of God. If you remember, Moses would go into that tent of meeting for exactly that purpose. Now, when John uses that word, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, many of you have probably heard this in prior sermons, but the word he uses there in the Greek is to pitch his tent or to tabernacle. Now, John isn't just throwing around words uselessly. He's using those so that instantly our minds would... Go back to Exodus 33 and 34. Have all that context and imagery and meaning in our heads and our minds and our hearts as we read that the Word Himself, the all-existent, self-sufficient Son of Glory, came down and became the glory and presence and character among His people. This is significant because Moses didn't just expect God to show up without any further revelation. No, he was tucked into the cleft of the rock and hidden, knowing that one day there would be a further word from God. But you see, with Moses, God did have to hide him. He had to put him in that cleft of the rock. He had to cover him with his hand and protect him from his unmediated glory. And what is so significant here is that the word of God that has dwelled in the presence of the Father for all eternity has come down into humanity and now not only has a voice, but has a face. The best way to picture it is like this. The same God who revealed God's glory, character, and presence to Moses in part 
has now revealed His glory, presence, and character in its fullness in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what John means two verses later in verse 16 when he writes, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. He's saying the fullness of God that was partially revealed to Moses has been fully revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Second, in John 1.14, John says, We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. You see, the partial glory that Moses saw, and that same glory that Ezekiel watched depart from the temple, is present in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.6, says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, talking about the creation of the world, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So first, we have this tabernacling presence of God in Christ. Second, we have the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But third, and I think more importantly, we have the same character that God revealed to Moses in the person of Jesus Christ. In John 1.14, when it says that Jesus is full of grace and truth, it is pointing us back to Exodus 34 again. It's as if the Apostle John has Exodus 33 and 34 scrolled out before him as he starts to pen his own gospel. Let me reread Exodus 34, 6 to you again, and then I'll explain. As God revealed himself to Moses, he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Almost every scholar out there is clear that John's phrase here, full of grace and truth, is a summary statement summarizing all of the characteristics that God had revealed about himself in Exodus 34.6. The Hebrew words, in fact, for faithfulness and steadfast love, when translated into the Greek as truth and grace, is exactly that. It is a summary of all of those characteristics into three small words, grace and truth. As Richard Bauckham writes, John is saying to us that Jesus manifested in his person and life the character of God, full of grace and truth. What Moses had heard but had not been allowed to see, Jesus made this point. Again, as John makes clear in 1.14, he says, we have seen his glory. He has seen his glory. He has seen his character. He has seen his presence. That which Moses could not see. John, the apostles, and many more witnesses saw with their own eyes. Really, to sum all this up, all we have to do is scroll down a couple verses to verse 17 and 18 when John writes, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. When Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock, God was protecting him from his own glory. 
Whereas Jesus, in a real sense, has come down into his creation, put the hands of his own body on his own creation, turned them around and said, look at my face. If you want to know who God is and what he is like, you look right here. Where God gave his law to Moses after the grievous golden calf incident, Jesus gives us grace and truth while we are still sinners. And herein lies the supreme importance of John 1.14. Humanity can now see the glory of God, witness the character of God, and be in the presence of God all without time. But how is it then that God can reveal his glory and character and presence in the person of Christ and us not die? You see, not much has changed, except God is now in the flesh in a human body. There still seems to be a question that needs to be answered, which is how is it that Moses could be in his presence and not die? And it was because God had covered Moses up from his glory, but now the glory, character, and presence is actually face-to-face -face with us, and it's unmediated. So how is it that we can come into his presence with our sin? and survive. Well, John 12, I think, holds the answers. We find that the glory of God that was revealed to Moses is revealed in its most glorious potency in the person of Christ. In fact, it is so glorious that we should not survive a moment, just like Moses should not have survived a moment. But John 12, 27, and 28 shows us that this glorious potency comes most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. John 12, 27, and 28 tells us of this beautiful revelation of God's glory between the Father and the Son. It's actually, we get, it's like we get these ringside seats to the most beautiful spectacle in all of human history. Listen to the Father and Son speak here. First, Jesus speaks in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. This is God the Father's voice now. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. As Jesus contemplates the suffering of the cross, the emotional and physical pain he will endure for the sake of sinners, it is here at the cross where God himself is most glorified. You see, the primary purpose of Jesus pitching his tent in this world was to reveal his glory to his people. That glory was first seen at his baptism when the Father spoke over him, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Later, at the Mount of, Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, John, they go up this mountain. The glory is seen, and God the Father speaks again. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him, but none will shine more brightly than the wonderful cross. You say, this is a moment where the Father and the Son are most personally revealed and most clearly known because the Father and the Son are both being glorified 
by one another at the cross. And as they mutually glorify one another, I want you to notice that this glory reveals the character of God that we saw in Exodus 34. You see, Jesus did not have to go to a cross because of his own sin. No, from his first breath until his final breath, he always obeyed his Father. He always did what he saw his Father doing. He always obeyed the law to the very last dot. And yet it's him who goes to a cross because he is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He steps down into this world for the sake of sinners. It was the cross that was meant to reveal the heart of God towards sinners. And that's exactly what John means in John 12, 29-30 when he writes, The crowd that stood there and heard it, talking about hearing God's voice from heaven, heard it and said that it had thundered. So you have one group in this crowd thinking that what they heard was just mere thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the right answer, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This is mind-boggling to me. The passage starts with Jesus' own soul being troubled. He starts to take stock of the pain he's about to experience as he goes to the cross as an innocent sacrifice for sinners. And all of a sudden, as God the Father speaks about glorifying his voice and he will glorify it again, you would almost bet your life that that voice came to comfort his own son. But Jesus says, that, that wasn't for me. God the Father speaking, that was for because he is a God that we have seen his glory and his character and his presence. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Him going to the cross, the father sending his son, the father speaking on behalf of his son was so that we sinners could know that he came for us and he loves us. It was for us. You see, God's revelation of his glory and character and presence are revealed for us. He reveals these things so that we can know that he really is who he says he is. And we, unlike Moses, need not wonder what he is like in his fullness any longer. No, the cross is the most potent example of his glory, character, and presence. And this is why sinners no longer have to hide when he shows himself. This is meant to draw us near. You see, a lot of times we hear about the cross, and rightly so, we hear it was Jesus enduring the wrath of God for sinners, and that is right, and that is great, and we need to hold on to that. But we often forget that the cross was also alluring God's people to himself. Isn't it something that we're supposed to feel ashamed about or guilty about? We're to run to him because his heart, his character is one that is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what John 12, 32 has in mind when he says, I, Jesus talking, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about the cross, will draw all people to myself. He doesn't say go run and hide and be ashamed of your sin. Don't function as if you're not loved. He's saying, 
This whole thing is meant to draw people to myself so they can know that the glory and character and presence that's been revealed about God throughout redemptive history is shown here so that you can come to me and be loved. As Dane Ortland writes, he says, The Lord passed by Moses and revealed that his deepest glory is seen in mercy and grace. Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God had done only in wind and voice in the Old Testament. When we see the Lord revealing his truest character to Moses in Exodus 34, we are using the shadow that will one day yield to the shadow caster, Jesus Christ in the Gospels. With Moses, we're being given in 2D what will explode into our own space and time continuum in Christ in 3D centuries later at the height of all of human history. Okay, so let's say we take John 1.14 through 18 for what it is. Let's say right now all of us here are accepting it, we're believing it, we're holding on to it, we're saying, okay, what do we do? Well, first receive it. Don't do a thing. Believe it first and foremost. But how do we apply then this reality of God revealing his glory, character, and presence in the person and work of Christ? I think one question to ask in figuring out how to apply such a grand reality is after all that God has revealed about his glory and character and presence, is he worth waiting on? Knowing all that we know about him, is he worth waiting on? You see, as I said earlier, Advent is a season of waiting. And rightly so, we mostly celebrate the fact that Christ became a man. We celebrate in this time that Jesus was born into human history as a baby. But, we also live in a time of waiting where we actually have the full and final revelation of God in Jesus Christ. We don't have it as it was revealed to Moses hidden in the cleft of a rock. We have it fully in the face of Jesus Christ. So whereas those Israelites for 400 years had to look back and hold on to the Exodus 34 revelation... Is this reality now that Christ has revealed all of these things in its fullness to us? Is that enough? If so, I think we can actually apply this sermon by remembering he's coming again. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 tells us of this next coming and the heart of those who trust in him while they wait. It says this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's his first coming, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Grace Church, we have the full revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He came and proved himself faithful in his first coming. And now as we await the next and last thing on the Christian calendar, the second coming of Jesus, can we trust while waiting for him in this time? 
Has what he has done and accomplished proven to be enough for us in our waiting? Can we be a people who trust in God and wait on him who has revealed his glory and character and presence? And in this season of waiting that for many of us has been unlike any other in our lifetime, will we find ourselves at the end of 2020 with hearts that have been revealed to say we're waiting more for a pandemic to be over? Or as Hebrews 9.28 says, are we having this eager expectation for Christ to return? What has a hold of our heart in this time? Will this revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ be enough to shake and shake and form our hearts to be a people who eagerly await his second coming. He keeps his word. He is who he says he is. And he will accomplish every single thing that he says he will. So Grace Church, let's be a people who wait upon our God knowing his character. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your glory and your character and your presence. Oh, Lord, we thank you that as you have done showing in grace and truth and mercy and kindness and steadfast love and faithfulness, rather than writing us off because of our sins and rebellion and our lack of waiting and our lack of trusting, you have sent your Son into this world to be the fullness of revelation to us. Well, God, who would we be to know all these things about you, to receive them, to love you, to trust you, and yet not be able to wait upon you? Oh, Lord, create in us a contentment that grabs onto and holds firmly what you have revealed about yourself in a true and practical manner that lives life each day, grabbing on to who you are and what you have done and trusting and waiting upon you. Holy Spirit, would you massage these truths and these realities into our hearts? And Lord, I pray even today as the news and the world and all these different things come and shout so loudly at us that we ought to be afraid and need to grab on to the nearest thing for safety, that Lord, we would look back onto the cross your resurrection, to your ascension, to your promised second coming, and we would rest on Help us, O oh God, let us worship you now in the fullness of grace and truth. In Jesus' name.